As I said, we will be uh, looking at this passage in Mark 15 uh, in more detail, but uh, to set the scene, I want to start in another passage, and uh, it might surprise you uh, where I'd like you to turn to. Um, If you want to look it up in your Bibles, feel free, Um, but otherwise, feel free just to listen, but... Uh, I want you to turn your mind, at least, to uh, the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts and uh, chapter 7, we see Stephen, one of the uh, members of the early church after Christ had risen and gone back to heaven. And Stephen is before the Jewish council, the same Jewish council which we saw just a few weeks ago sentenced Jesus to death. And Stephen is standing before that same council giving a defense for his life. Uh, He's been accused of um, being a, um, uh, saying things which are not true and uh, for his preaching of Christ and He's being asked to give an account of himself. And much of Acts chapter 7 is his speech, if you like, of defense. But what he says isn't what you might initially expect. Uh, You might expect him to give a list of all the good things he has done and refutations of the things that he's been accused of. But that's not what Stephen does. Uh, Instead, Stephen gives a history lesson. Uh, I was tempted to read the passage um, earlier, but uh, it's very long. (laughs) And if you read it and you try to take in what Stephen's saying, you can't help but think, where's Stephen going with this? (laughs) He rehearses essentially the whole history of the Old Testament. And you think, Stephen, your life is at stake here. Why are you rehearsing history which the people he's speaking to already knew? Uh, In particular, he emphasizes Moses. Uh, Moses, who was chosen by God to save the people of Israel. Um, But he draws attention to the fact that although Moses was chosen by God, and although he had God's seal of approval, the people initially rejected him. Uh, The people who God had sent him to save, initially, would have nothing to do with him. They rejected him. Um, He speaks of how when he sought to separate two Israelite brothers who were arguing while Moses was still a prince in Egypt, uh, they said to him, who made you a divider and a judge amongst us? Later, when he comes back to uh, tell Pharaoh to let um, God's people go, uh, the end result or the immediate result is that their work gets harder Because Pharaoh says, who are you, Moses, to tell me what to do? And the people hate him because of it. 
And Stephen rehearses uh, what happened with Moses back in the book of Exodus. And eventually he reaches his climax. Uh, He reaches his climax in this long speech. And he says in verse 51 to the Jewish council, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so do you. And finally, we see the point that Stephen has been driving to. What he's been doing has been showing how the Israelites, time and time and time again, rejected the one God sent to them to save them. They did it with Joseph. They did it with Moses. They did it with David. They did it with all the prophets. They rejected the ones God sent to save them. And his point is simply this. You have done exactly the same thing with Christ, with Jesus of Nazareth. He is like Moses. Just like your fathers rejected Moses, you have rejected Christ. And that is Stephen's defense. He's saying, I'm not the one out of line. You are. And you're behaving just like your fathers behaved in the Old Testament. Now, the reason I start with that introduction is because what Stephen does in Acts chapter 7, in many ways, is similar to what Mark is doing in Mark chapter 15. Uh, Remember, Mark was writing to uh, his own audience then, and quite likely his audience were largely Jews. And in this passage, this very famous passage of the crucifixion of Christ, Mark isn't just relating history, though he is, of course, doing that. By what Mark chooses to include, he's showing his readers Christ is the Messiah. Christ is the one who was promised that, who the one promised one who would come. But instead of comparing Jesus to Moses, like Stephen did in Acts chapter 7, what Mark does is compare. Jesus to David, to King David, arguably the greatest king that Israel had up to this point. Uh, You can see this emphasized uh, right at the beginning in verse 25. Uh, Did you notice what it said? It said, now it was the third hour. That's about 9 a.m. in the morning. Uh, The counting system counted from 6 a.m. So the third hour was 9 a.m. Now it was the third hour and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. Above the cross where Jesus was crucified, uh, there was written the accusation against him. Apparently, this was often done to crucified criminals. What they were accused of was written at the top, above their head, on the cross. And the accusation against Christ is this, is the king of the Jews. Now, obviously, 
it was put up in mockery. Uh, the people who wrote that, when they put it on the cross, they did not truly believe that Jesus was the king of the Jews. It was, as I say, a mockery. But it should at least have got people's minds thinking. Especially the minds of the Jewish people who were looking on. Because as they saw that scene of Christ nailed to a cross with the sign saying the king of the Jews, it should have put them in mind of a passage in scripture. Uh, In particular, Psalm 22 and verse 16. And King David, writing this psalm many hundreds of years before, wrote this. He says, dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. So these Jewish people, looking at this man who claimed to be the king of the Jews, with a sign above him saying, the king of the Jews, nailed to the cross. If they had had eyes to see and ears to hear, they should have thought this is more than a coincidence. Here we see the king of the Jews sounding like King David in Psalm 22. And throughout this passage, uh, whether you noticed it or not, Mark is showing us all the ways in which Christ is like David. And as I said, as I'm going to say Many times throughout this message, the Israelites should have seen it. They should have been listening to God's word and they should have recognized what was happening. Uh, Anyone who had been meditating on God's word, as God said they should and as we should, would have seen that something unusual was happening here. Uh, move along in the passage and you can see, or actually a little bit backwards, if you look at verse 22, uh, did you notice what it said? It says, they, that's the soldiers, brought Jesus to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. Uh, Mark tells us how the soldiers uh, gave Uh, Jesus' cheap wine mingled with myrrh. And to many, this may just be seen as another example of uh, cruel mockery. Jesus, the king, he needs some wine to drink. And so they give him this bitter wine. Um, But there is some evidence that uh, Jewish women would actually give condemned criminals Um, wine mixed with frankincense. And the idea was that this would dull the pain somewhat. And there is uh, evidence from the Talmud, a Jewish um, book of the law, which uh, describes that. But it's hard to see why the soldiers would be concerned with dulling Jesus' pain. Also, it says it was myrrh not frankincense. Uh, Apparently, 
some people, I wouldn't recommend this, I'm not a doctor, I don't know if it's a good thing to do or not, but some people do chew frankincense, which says to me that it's not the worst tasting thing, but myrrh, on the other hand, is bitter. It's very bitter to taste. So these soldiers, perhaps in mockery of what the Jewish women would do, they mix the wine with myrrh, not frankincense, to make it more bitter. But either way, regardless of what the soldiers were thinking when they did it, those looking on should have thought of another psalm. Another psalm in scripture. Psalm 69 verse 21 says, They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Again, they should have seen this is very similar to what the uh, Psalms writes. And if they had been seeped in scripture, they would see that what's happening to Christ is the same as happened to David all those years before. But Mark's not done. He continues. Look at verse 24. It says, And when they crucified him, they divided his garments casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Once again, a casual onlooker would simply see callous Roman soldiers uh, taking this man's clothing and tearing it into portions, uh, sorry, um, casting lots for it so that they wouldn't tear it apart. Uh, so callously drawing lots for the man's clothing while he is hanging on a cross. But once again, those looking on who knew the scripture couldn't help but remember Psalm 22, verses 7 to 8, which read again, David says, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Sorry, no, I've read the wrong passage there. So it's Psalm 22, verse 18 where it says, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. There it is in scripture, and there it is happening in front of their eyes. David, we don't know the exact situation it was in David's case, but here with Christ, the son of David, we see the same thing happening again this surely must be more than coincidence but again mark is still not done look at verse 29 it says and those who passed by blasphemed him wagging their heads and saying aha you who destroy the temple and build it in three days save yourself and come down from the cross Uh, he describes how the chief priests and the scribes also mocked christ Even the two thieves on either side of Jesus mocked him. You'd have thought they had better things to be thinking about in that moment. But even they were reviling, ridiculing Christ. But once again, what did Psalm 22 say? David, Psalm 22, verses 7 to 8, says, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. 
the very words are spoken to Christ on the cross. And if that wasn't enough, if that wasn't enough to wake people up to what was happening here, from the very cross itself, Jesus speaks. Verse 33 onwards. Now when the sixth hour, that's uh, three o'clock. Now when the sixth hour, sorry, 12 o'clock. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he is calling for Elijah. From the cross, Jesus says those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's literally quoting the very first words of David's psalm, Psalm 22. And all these things should have pointed people to saying, to thinking, he's just like David. What are we doing? What is happening here? Now, of course, there are many reasons uh, why Jesus said these words on the cross, and uh, many of them are very difficult to fathom. Uh, it's apparently said, actually, that Martin Luther uh, once sat down to prepare a sermon on that verse, uh, Mark 15, verse 34. And he sat at his desk, chewing over the meaning of what it meant for Christ to say to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And every once in a while, someone would poke their head in at the study and they would see him in exactly the same position, uh, not budging an inch. And finally, uh, they say that Luther uh, threw up his hands in the air and he exclaimed, God, forsaken by God, who can understand it? And he went about some other business. This verse gives us the depth of the cross, uh, that Christ, though the Son of God, is treated like an outcast. Though the person who God loved from eternity past more than any other, here he is, as it were, forsaken. And we can't wrap our heads around that. Uh, There are some things in scripture we just have to kind of put a hand over our mouths and just say we don't understand. But we can say like the hymn writer said, we may not know, we cannot tell what griefs he had to bear, but we believe it was for us he hung and suffered there. Uh, Christ endured being forsaken by his own father that he may bear our sin. But for whatever other reason Christ said these words, one of those reasons was surely to help those watching on to see what was happening. As he quotes the very words from Psalm 22, he's saying to them, I am the Messiah. I am the son of David. You are rejecting 
your king. As you treated David in past centuries, so you are treating me. But could they see it? The answer is no. Did you notice what happened in verse 35? After they hear these words from Christ on the cross, it says, Some of those who stood by, when they heard that, said, Look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. Mark is showing us how they completely missed what was happening. They hear those words in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, uh, my God, my God. And they think, oh, he's calling for Elijah. (laughs) They've completely missed the point. They cannot see what is right in front of their faces. They cannot see what Mark explains for us in verses 27 and 28. Uh, With him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left, So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He's quoting there from Isaiah 53, which says that on the cross, the Messiah would bear the sins of many. Uh, Jesus wasn't suffering for his own sins. He was suffering for the sins of even those who were crucifying him. That was why Christ was on the cross. And yet, all they could do was mock. All they could do was ridicule. They could not see what was happening. What they should have done is bow down immediately in repentance and in horror at what they were doing. They should have seen that they were rejecting their king. They should have seen the horrific act they were perpetrating. But they were blind. They could not see it. But ironically, there was one person who could see it, at least one person. Did you notice what it said in verse 39? When the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Do you see the irony? Do you see the irony that Mark is bringing out for us? The Jewish people who should have known the scriptures, should have known the Psalms, should have known how they had treated the prophets and the kings uh, and Moses in the past, they're blind to it. They're busy thinking that Jesus is calling out for Elijah and whatnot. They don't understand. And yet this Roman centurion, a Gentile, he can see it. He can see that truly this man was the son of God. That's the message that Mark is giving in this passage. This wasn't just some criminal. This was the Messiah. This was the saviour of the world. And on that cross, he was bearing the sins of many, just as Isaiah said he would. Did you notice what happened 
in verse 38. It says, after Jesus cried out with a loud voice, then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Uh, In the temple, there was a great veil which separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And no one could go through that veil except the high priest, and he could only go once a year. And that veil signified the holiness of God and the purity of God uh, and the separation that exists between us and God because of our sin. But when Jesus bore our sins on the cross, we're told that that veil was torn from top to bottom. God himself, as it were, ripped it in half because the way had been made clear to him. No longer need there be a separation between us and God. Christ had made the way clear for anyone who was willing to see it. And the tragedy is that all these people who should have known better, so many of them were blind and they couldn't. But that's really the question for us this evening as well. Um, it's possible to read your Bible diligently every day. It's possible to be found in church every week. Uh, It's possible to be very religious and to do all the right things outwardly and yet be blind to who Christ is. Let me ask you this evening, have you truly seen Christ for who he is? Is he truly your Lord and Saviour? I'm not asking whether you read your Bible. I'm not reading if you go to church. I'm not asking if you do this, that, or the other. I'm asking, do you love Christ? Have you seen him for yourself and seen your sin on the cross? Have you seen that when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you understood that it was for you that Christ was forsaken? Because if not, you're just like those Jewish people were then. Very religious, diligent in their Bible reading, and yet blind. That is what this passage is designed to teach us to show us who Christ truly is and what he has done for us. Again, in the words of Isaiah, he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many. I just want to leave you uh, with that thought. What do you think of Jesus Christ? Where would you have been on that day? Would you have been with the crowds, mocking and ridiculing? Would you have been like those just standing by, not really understanding, not getting involved, but just watching? Or would you have been like that centurion? Truly, this was the Son of God. And that's why I've chosen uh, as our final hymn, number 205, a hymn which asks God to give us that sight, to see Christ as he truly 
is. Give me a sight, O Saviour, of thy wondrous love to me, of the love that brought thee down to earth to die on Calvary with the chorus, O make me understand it. Help me to take it in, what it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. So we'll close by singing number 205.